KZSU, Stanford University's FM radio station, broadcasting across the Bay Area on 90.1 FM and across the world at kzsu.org. And from the campus of Stanford University, this is the Innovators Radio Show and Podcast featuring in-depth, one-on-one interviews with mission-driven entrepreneurs, renowned thought leaders, and game changers committed to ideas, innovation, and getting the heck out of the building. Our radio show and podcast illuminates the struggle, breakthroughs, and exceptional outcomes game changers bring to industries, organizations, and lives. Hosted by Tom Dioro, Principal of Accurate and retired Colonel Pete Newell, CEO of BMNT. Thank you, Charlotte. Please welcome Colonel John Cogbill, Chief of Staff of the Joint Special Operations Command. He was commissioned as an infantry officer from the United States Military Academy in 1994 and has served in both conventional and special operations units in a variety of command and staff positions, including serving as assistant professor of economics at West Point. He earned a master's in public administration from the Harvard Kennedy School and studied design thinking, lean startup methods, and entrepreneurship at Stanford University as a senior service college fellow. His most recent assignment was as the commander of the 3rd Brigade Rockassons of the 101st Airborne Division, where he made tactical-level innovation one of his command priorities. He has served as a peacekeeper in Haiti and Kosovo and has multiple combat deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan. Hey, John, you know, as, as we were talking before we started this thing, since I've managed to actually get through the introduction without blowing it, um, <laughs> It's up to you to lighten the mood. So anything that that you can throw out to you that's happened in the past week or so that um, is humorous that, that would kind of set us off? There's a lot, of, a lot of humorous things that happen inside of a brigade combat team on a daily basis, but probably most of them aren't appropriate for radio. Um, <laughs> I sur- I'm surrounded by 4,000 uh, infantry soldiers here in this brigade combat team, uh, the majority of whom are between 18 and 22 years old so it's, it's kind of like, i guess like being on a college campus it's uh, it's a constant reminder uh, of how old i am uh and so that's i think for for me and my peers we spend most of our time just making fun of ourselves and uh, as as we age and, and try to keep up with these these young soldiers and, and all of their uh their physical prowess but um it, it reminds me of when i was that age uh, the first time i came to fort campbell kentucky was as a cadet in 1992, it was my first, I was a I was a West Point cadet, and I had the opportunity to travel here to go to the Air Assault School, which, which is the same Savalowski Air Assault School that, that we run now. Only it was in World War II barracks, uh, and the equipment was uh, was a little bit different. But I knew nothing about the Army uh, other than what I learned at, at West Point, which was a lot about being a cadet, but not a lot about the Army. And I, but I was in great shape. I was motivated and willing to learn. And uh, I, I just I remember uh, one of my probably the you know day one as, as they, I was putting on this new helmet I, we had actually worn steel pots during our cadet basic training which is the old Vietnam st- uh, style helmet uh, this was the first time I'd worn an army uh, combat helmet uh, which was the you know the new Kevlar design I wasn't quite familiar with it but uh, I, I dutifully uh, w- was wearing my equipment they told us to ground it, all of our equipment. And we had us out doing some PT, uh, running around doing some physical training, probably some flutter kicks and push-ups and other uh, type activities. And then they told us to fall back in on our equipment and, and, and get in formation. So I did, and I was in such a hurry. I was uh, so eager to impress them with my uh, my motivation to be an air assault candidate that I slapped that helmet on my on my head. Uh, and when I did, and I fashioned the chin strap, I thought it felt a little uncomfortable, but I thought everything was going was going well until the cadre started gathering around me uh, and calling the, calling their friends over to to kind of marvel at what they saw in front of them. And I, I guess uh, I was in such a hurry that I'd end up putting that helmet backwards uh, and was not aware that I was, I was actually wearing my helmet. And, and they found a lot of amusement in, in that, uh, so much so that I learned some new words like kadidiot. <laughs> Uh, that oh, I had never, I, never heard before. So, uh, you know, I have this picture that, of Darth Vader showing up with his helmet on backwards. Yeah, you know, and the helmet looks well about intentioned. like the original one did. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh. Our, our helmet has not changed in, in the in the 27 years that I, uh, since I've told this story. I, I, I think we've tried to lighten it maybe by an ounce or two, but 
that that was my introduction to the 101st Airborne Division, uh, and so I like to to tell that to the to young soldiers, uh, tell them that story when it, now that I'm back here uh, as a crusty old brigade commander. Uh, but we all start somewhere, and, and you don't know what you don't know, but you got to be willing to learn. Why well, is that the truth? So it, you know, you know, I've likened the the experience of a, a brigade commander to, you know, managing. A large organization that just happened to involve like seven high schools and junior colleges all bolted together at one time. When it when it came to, you know, Monday through Friday, you know, you, you always had a relatively good grip on things. And from Friday about 4 o'clock until Monday morning at, at 6 a.m., my stress level climbed out of the, out of the roof. And, and it generally, it was, it was because that many young women and men in, in tight confines who work as hard as they do Monday through Friday tend to let off steam. And they would find the most creative ways to um, obviously de-stress themselves and... And I don't know, for John's sake, I, I don't know if it's the same way, but as a commander, you just get the what they call a blotter report. So every time somebody got arrested or did something bad or whatever else, you get this email BlackBerry message, and you get a roll-up every night. And, and I don't forget, you know, my first couple days of brigade commander, you know, I, I didn't get through a four-day holiday without 30 or 40 of these things. <laughs> And I just remember looking you know, at the senior NCO that you know the Monday morning and said, you know, we're going to do this for two years. Holy, I learned some things that that I didn't think were humanly possible. Um, so excuse me, John. I I don't miss blotter reports, you know, over the course of the weekend. All I do miss the the sense of humor that comes from some of the things that that people can actually pull off without killing or hurting anybody. <laughs> Uh, you're absolutely right. It's uh, fortunate I have seven battalion commanders uh, between me and those, uh, you know, as active in discipline when they do occur. So uh, at, this, at this stage in the game, it's about reporting uh, and making sure that we're doing the right things to hold people accountable and, and to make sure that they're safe. Uh, and But you're right. I mean, they are young people and, and they, they've got a lot of energy, uh, like I said, as do your your college students there on campus. And, uh, you know, they're they're that youthful exuberance sometimes uh, will, will lead them down the wrong path and, and they make mistakes. But uh, we, we try to have an environment here where they can recover from mistakes uh, as long as they're, you know, living their lives in accordance with army values and, and not doing anything, you know, breaking the law. Uh, but, but young people will mistake, will make mistakes. And we understand that. Yeah. That's, you know, probably the heart of, of good, solid leadership. Hey, along those lines, you know, one of the reasons that I really wanted to get you on this show and talk to you is, I guess it's it's that idea of, of finding young folks really productive things that, that they can do with their imagination and their hands and and teach them that, that they really can solve some of the world's toughest problems while improving that confidence level to go out and, and tackle things in the unknown. And... You know, I've I've been following your efforts at Fort Campbell to to partner with Vanderbilt University and to to run some of your own um, innovation platforms. So I, I'd love to, you know, for the audience's sake, have you talk a little bit about um, the construct of your innovation program? You know, nuts and bolts of how it kind of comes together, and then I, I've got a couple of really specific questions for you because I, I just love what you've managed to do at the tactical level with young folks without asking anybody's permission to do it. Yeah. Well, it, it's been a work in progress. And uh, quite honestly, Pete, you had a lot to do with the inspiration for this idea. Uh, when it, you know, As you mentioned earlier, I had the, the opportunity to come out and study at Stanford for a year as a War College fellow. And uh, my price of admission was writing a paper uh, of strategic significance for the Army. And uh, you know, there was a multitude of topics I could, I could have selected, but uh, someone I, some made a couple good recommendations to me. I said, one, you know, do something that you can only do in the area that you're in. So I, I was at, you know, in Palo Alto, uh, right in the heart of Silicon Valley, uh, surrounded by a bunch of entrepreneurs and, and brilliant people. Uh, so I said, I, I'd like to probably do something along these lines. And, and then the second thing they said is write a paper that's self-serving uh, because no one else is going to read it. 
Uh, so if, if it's useful to you, then your time is well spent. And, um, and so I did, I, I figured I wanted to focus on, on innovation and how do you take a culture of innovation that exists in Silicon Valley and bring it to the United States Army, but, but bring it to the level where soldiers are involved. And that's the tactical level versus the operational or the strategic level uh, where, you know, where you're thinking Pentagon and large acquisition programs and et cetera. Uh, so that was that was my charter, and in, in, in through you know talking with folks like you and participating in in the hacking de- for defense course, uh, you know working with Joe Felter, um, being get, getting to to meet Steve Blank and, and learn about uh, you know the, the lean startup methodology and the mission model canvas, I started to develop a, a roadmap for how how do you build uh, a culture of innovation inside of a brigade combat team uh, to to really get soldiers involved in the process. So how how do we go from kind of that incremental and sustained innovation, which we're, we're pretty good at in terms of just being uh, uh, innovative or, or uh, harnessing the ingenuity of soldiers, the MacGyvers in the ranks, as you like to call them, to, to really leading to something that might be disruptive that will help us as an Army maintain an offset against our, our adversaries, maintain a competitive advantage, or in some cases regain a competitive advantage. And so that's kind of a tall order, and it probably will take up the majority of uh, of what we're talking about. But uh, I, I think what I realized was that the, the, the secret sauce out in Silicon Valley was the culture. Uh, it wasn't any one particular widget program uh, or, or idea, but it was a culture uh, of inclusiveness, a culture of collaboration uh, that valued critical thinking uh, and, and, and creative solutions to complex problems. And so – that's not typically what you think of when you think of a brigade combat team, an organization that's purpose-built to fight and win our nation's wars. Uh, but if, if, you, if you have served in the Army uh, and if you've been around young soldiers, as you have, uh, you'll realize how, just how much talent there is in the ranks. Um, you know, just, they, they come from all walks of life, uh, but they all have something in common, which is they, they want to serve a cause bigger than themselves. And they, they want to you know they want to make themselves better. That's why they joined the army. But they want to make the army better. They want to. They they didn't join the army to lose or to be mediocre. They joined the army to be all that they can be, uh, to help the army. Uh, you know, win 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 our wars and defend our nation. So, how do you how do you capture all that? How do you get them involved in the innovation process? That was kind of my problem. You know, my problem statement is, is how do you expand uh, the the size of the the innovation uh, labor pool. You know, how do you get more? How do you get 4,000 people looking to solve a problem instead of just two? Uh, and then how do you scale that across the army so you've got half a million people trying to solve our modernization challenges? Uh, and I and I can pause there if you have any specific questions. But that was that was my going in challenge. Uh, and then we, you know, by empowering leaders in the organization, getting people bought in, and starting to build this culture, we, we've we've had certain milestones along the way where we we've slowly uh, been able to create some value and, and and build some partnerships, build some relationships that I think will will benefit us and will benefit the army down the road. Hey, so, John, let me I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a two parter here. the The first one is, yeah, I'm really curious. You left Stanford and took command of a brigade combat team, and you stood on the parade field and uttered the word innovation and culture in the same sentence. I'm sure you did it. Um, how did you get started? I mean, I, I can't tell you how many large organizations I've been into that I get need to call change culture, innovation, want, 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 and and the next thing out of people's mouth is, but we have no idea where to start. Yeah. How did? First, I'd love to know how you did start, but what was what was kind of the reaction um, within the brigade and I guess amongst your peers on Fort Campbell to what you were trying to do. Well, it started probably two hours after my change of command ceremony, uh, where I, I had all the leaders uh, in the auditorium on post, you know, in the movie theater, and I asked for the company commander, first sergeant, above. So that you're talking about captains, uh, you know, with about six to eight years in the army. First sergeants uh, probably have, I don't know, 12, 14, 15 years in the army. Uh, then you've got all the majors, you've got uh, all the battalion commanders and, and the sergeant's major. 
And that, and that was my group of leaders. That was my target audience. And I knew that, that that's who I needed to influence uh, immediately to get some buy into anything that I wanted to do. So as a new commander, you come in with your priorities and, and you build your priorities based off of your boss's priorities, your boss's boss's priorities, uh, first and foremost. And then what you think you want, you know, you want to do specifically, like what, how am I leave my mark on this organization? What's going to be unique to, to my leadership, to my goals, to what I think, uh, what, what my 23 years of experience up to this point ha- has led me to believe is important for uh, this, this type of, of, of Army organization. And so you, you lay out your priorities. And, and the first of all was, you know, the vision that I had was, was running a, a brigade combat team where we could, we could truly exercise this concept of mission command, um, which is an Army, which is an Army term. Uh, but it, it really just means empowering people uh, to encourage disciplined initiative within commander's intent um, and, and, and really incorporating agile and adaptive leaders to, to, to doing what it is that we do best, you know, unified land operations. So that was my, you know, that was, hey, th- this is the type of organization I want to run. 4,000 people are too many for me to tell what to do every day. I, I can't even tell seven people, seven battalion commanders what to do every day. I need you to understand the intent, know where we're going. Um, you know, I'm going to give you a purpose, some key tasks, and an end state to where we need to be, and I need you to go out and execute violently. So then within that, I had four priorities, uh, the first being readiness, which comes from the you know, chief of staff of the Army's number one priority for the Army has been readiness, uh, being, you know, deployment readiness, training readiness, uh, physical readiness, uh, medical readiness, all the things that need to, that we need to be ready to do to, to deploy uh, and fight tonight, wherever that might be. The second thing was resilience. Uh, you know, how do we have soldiers that are, you know, achieve a balance between mind, body, soul that are, you know, uh, understand physical fitness, nutrition, sleep, all those things that make us uh, resilient soldiers and, and capable of enduring the rigors of combat and then being able to kind of endure the rigors of reentry to civilian life post-military service. And then my third priority was innovation. And, and again, that kind of came from my, my experience in, in Silicon Valley and uh, and studying at Stanford and seeing the power of creating that type of culture and, and what that can do to an organization where you've got people that, that feel empowered and, and are all pulling the rope in the same direction and can really move things forward. Uh, and then the last one was teamwork. Uh, just the importance of you know uh, building strong teams inside the brigade, outside the brigade, across the division, uh, which in turn builds trust. And so all of these things, all those four priorities, I, I laid that out to the leaders I kind of gave them my sales pitch. And then I think probably the, the most important thing I did was, because at that point, it's, they're still looking at you as just another commander who might have, you know, oh, great, here's here's another laundry list of tasks for me to accomplish. But I asked them to fill out, a, I passed out note cards, and I asked them to tell me, hey, what are, if, if you were a brigade commander, uh, if you were in my shoes, what's one thing that, you know, one or two things that you would you would sustain, keep the same, and what is something that you would change? Um, and then it was it was get, soliciting that input, and then having a conversation and dialogue, where I think they realized I'm, I was not only in broadcast mode, but I was also willing to listen, and then taking some of those ideas and incorporating that into our priorities and how we built out a long-range training calendar, started to build that trust and and and, and make people feel like well maybe he actually does care about what we think, and, and maybe we actually will be part of the solution, part of the process. So that that's kind of step one. So you you mentioned the I guess it's the the culture thing, and now that you've been into it for a couple of years, how how do you I understand incrementally? How do you know you're changing the culture? Or and it's not changing it. How do you know you're creating the culture that you want? Are, are there some key indicators that you? you know, started with and then changed over time versus, you know, you're getting ready to, to exit your two-year command. Where, where do you sit with them now? Well, I think one is that people want to be here. They want to be part of the process, and they're willing to, to volunteer their free time to contribute to a task or a project or a mission that we have ongoing. So we all have duty descriptions uh, in whatever job that we're in, whatever capacity, whether you're the operations officer, or logistics officer, or a public affairs officer, or whatever, 
But then we've got kind of these parallel structures. If you're in a truly innovative organization, you create these parallel structures that are focused on innovation and design and, and creating uh, and making. Uh, and, and so you have these things that require, because we're, we're not, we're not given innovation officers or people to do innovative things by our, our structure, our task organization, we need people to kind of be willing to do this in the free time. And so if you, if you have an event, whether it's a, you know, an innovation symposium, an open mic night, a, you know, a hackathon, something of this nature, and people are willing to show up and give up their own free time and not just during the duty day, but you got guys sending you, you emails or, or communicating on Slack and sharing ideas with each other, sharing articles because they're, they're excited. They're pa as passionate about it as you are. then that's usually a good indication. And another good indication is that, that it's, it's, that we're not only building a culture here inside of the organization, but the word of this culture is starting to get out is when people come knocking on my door, asking to join the brigade, uh, when maybe they're on orders to another brigade because they've heard of, of what's, you know, they, they, they want to join the movement. They want to join the innovation insurgency uh, and, and, and kind of get in on, on the, the goodness that's happening here. To me, that, that speaks volumes. Uh, and and it, it's, it says a lot more than anything that I could say about the unit. I think when, when other people are, are talking, are bragging on the, you know, kind of, you know, what we're doing, why we're doing it and how we're doing it, and it, which makes other people want to join. Yeah, John, how do you identify, I'll go back to the word, you said MacGyvers in the, uh, in the uh, soldiers who have that characteristic that is sort of a MacGyvers or a MacGyver. Yeah. Well, um, yeah. First of all, I'd say most soldiers are, you know, and when I'm talking about soldiers, I'm talking about young, like private, private first class specialists through sergeant, the ones that are closest to the problem, the ones that, um, you know, when when they're on a, a vehicle crew, the guy that actually does the maintenance on the vehicle or the gunner that gets behind the crew served weapon and, and, and has to manipulate that thing and fire it on the range. Or that you know the, the young soldier that's digging the fighting position and pulling security while you know the, the leadership is inside of the the talk uh, developing plans or, or issuing orders. So I think they all are have this innate ability to, to kind of to do things with their hands. They're 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 action figures. Uh, they don't get paid to to stroke their chin and, and, and pontificate. We expect them to do. And because they're they're good at doing that, and they do it on a regular basis, and they they get their hands dirty a lot more than folks like I, you know, me or my my sergeant major or some of the field grade officers do. Um, they 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 know how to do things smarter. And so the I guess that what 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 I'm looking for are the ones that are, you know, not only have the 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 requisite skill set, they understand their job, uh, but they're passionate about their job, and they're 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 not content to to do it a certain way because because that's how they were told to do it they're willing to communicate uh to someone to say hey i think there's a better way of doing this and, and most of the soldiers that i've encountered are not shy about sharing their their, their dissatisfaction with something uh, but the ones that are truly uh the ones that you know talented and the ones that you want to pull onto a team are the ones that don't just complain about a problem but they offer a solution uh and and they're not afraid to tell it you know to to tell truth to power whether that's to their lieutenant, whether that's to their platoon sergeant, or to a general officer that happens to come walking into the motor pool asking them how things are going. So, you know, there, there has to be a level of intellectual curiosity, uh, a, a confidence in, in themselves and a willing, willingness to speak truth to power, and then uh, just that, that willingness to, to be part of a team and to share their ideas with others, all in the interest of making the organization better, making, you know, that task that they're asked to perform better. Excellent. You're listening to the Innovators Radio Show and Podcast at KZSU, Stanford 90.1 FM with Tom Dioro and Peter Newell. Scholarship America believes that every student, regardless of financial status, deserves an opportunity to go to college. Since its founding, Scholarship America has distributed more than $3 billion to 2 million students nationwide. It supports a number of leading programs, including Dollars for Scholars, Dream Keepers, and Scholarship Management Services. You can help make a difference in the lives of students. To learn more, visit scholarshipamerica.org. So, John, I want to I 
change hats for just a second, and I want to dig in a little bit to, you know, what I would say is you're six months into this and you've iterated through a couple things. What what are some of those, and I would say the specific activities you did that you thought were particularly successful, and, and how about a couple of that, that you tried that you know, kind of flamed out on their own? Sure. Well, it's 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 been somewhat incremental. You know, we started with baby steps. Um, you know, creating a dialogue uh, and, and getting people involved in the process. You know, a little bit of education about kind of what tactical level innovation might be. Creating some, you know, hosting some uh, professional development sessions uh, to to pull leaders in and make them aware of of, of what it is that we're trying to accomplish. And so. Um, so we can talk all day to people about it, but again, they, they kind of want to see what is it that you really, really want me to do. So we hosted our uh, an innovation challenge, I guess, uh, for, across the brigade using a, a known capability gap that the Army uh, talked a lot about when I was going through all my pre-command courses, which is having uh, agile command posts. So when you think of a brigade talk, and you know you've been in a brigade talk, you know the, the huge amounts of tents and vehicles and and, and communications equipment. Uh, we, you know, they're they're too big, uh, they're too cumbersome, they're hard to pick up, pack up, throw in the back of a truck and, and move, which is something that we're required to do uh, when we're facing either a near peer threat or a peer threat uh, that is, that is well equipped with long range precision fires and the ability to to really make our lives miserable if we stay in one place too long. So we, we, we started with an innovation challenge for how do, let, how do we make mobile, agile, survivable command posts. And we put that out to all the battalions and we didn't tell them what to do. We just said, this, this is kind of what we need you to be able to do, which is displace in under an hour, uh, reestablish communications, um, you know, maintain all your, um, you know, your, uh, the things that you need to be able to, the functions of a command post, and then somehow, uh, you know, make your, your networks more resilient. And that was our initial challenge. And um, people didn't really know what to make of it. Uh, they did you know, cause I didn't tell them what exactly what I wanted. So I just said, you know, you're going to show up and you're going to brief your idea. Uh, and they did. And they came back with some really neat ideas, uh, which were implemented at the company and uh, at the battalion and the company level. And they were they were minor modifications, you know, repurposing, um, you know, uh, different different trucks that were in the the support company's inventory, and, and making them mobile command posts instead of nor- using the normal tentage, uh, you know, building out the backs of Humvees with to make little mini shelters where they could do command and control functions, uh, where they could they could track movement on the battlefield, they can set up their communications equipment so that they could literally just drive away. If they started taking incoming fire, uh, or if they needed to relocate to you know to some a different piece of terrain, and so that kind of got the ball rolling. But from that, there was we we realized that it wasn't just at the, the battalion company level, but we really needed to look at the brigade level because you know that's where we were probably the largest, the slowest, uh, and need, had the most room for improvement. And kind of turned off turned our uh, the staff loose. And they, they, they started developing a concept that was not just kind of repurposing the tentage inside of the brigade talk, but an entirely different way of fighting. So by uh, for our brigade talk, disaggregating about 70% of, of our talk functions and, and putting that, detaching it from our, our main command post and putting it in sanctuary and connecting it all through the cloud. Um, and it, I, without getting too technical, that that was an effort that kind of spun out of what you know what we were trying to do at the company and battalion level. We ended up it became it ended up becoming one of our primary innovation efforts was to you know reimagine you know the command post of the future at the brigade level, and we were able to t- take that through the initial prototyping you know the, the ID the, the uh, you know kind of the, the iterating the uh, the prototyping the testing testing it in, in both garrison environment testing it in the field environment. And then eventually taking this concept to to our combat training center down at Fort Polk, Louisiana, and and, and using it in our simulated war against a, a live op four, um, and, and the short of the story was it was wildly successful. Uh, it allowed our brigade to to go undetected, 
during force-on-force operations against the Op 4 down at, at Fort Polk, Louisiana. Uh, and we had uninterrupted communications, which built um, like kind of un, unseen levels of situational awareness, uh, our ability to maintain uh, a common operational picture, uh, and to communicate with our battalion. So that all kind of spun out of that, in, that initial innovation effort. Um, so I would say that was probably our most successful, and it was so successful that now our, the division staff, uh, and General Camera, our Corps commander, has said we need to do this at the division, the Corps level, uh, kind of disaggregating some of these systems to make us more agile uh, on the battlefield and make us more survivable. So I would take that as a pretty big innovation win. And there have been some other, there, there have been some small things, you know, with you know items that we've 3D printed. Uh, modifications to, you know, putting rail mounts onto eight anti-tank weapons or being able to mount night, you know, a let, you know, put a laser onto a weapon or, um, you know, small things like that. And then there have been, there have been things that have, that we've we invested some time in that were maybe not as successful, but it, that the, even the things that were not as successful have, have resulted in that validated learning causes to pivot and come up with some new ideas and, and, and maybe form new relationships, new partnerships with others that can that'll make us more successful in the future. So uh, it, it is a process. It's an iterative process and uh, it really never ends. But those are just a couple of the highlights. Yeah, John, is there a, for lack of a better word, a reward or recognition once those uh, those initiatives are proven successful? What, what do you think the reward is? I mean, at your level, it's one thing, but for the youngsters, what what would you say they were working for? Well, at, at the you know, it, it depends on what level you're talking about. At the soldier level, the reward is somebody listening to your idea and and actually implementing it. So if a, if a, a a private or you know a specialist or a sergeant actually takes the time to 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 make a suggestion, and then someone from their chain of command listens and then actually implements that to the betterment of the unit, then I think they realize, like, I am now part of the solution. I'm empowered uh, and they actually care what I think. And therefore, they're going to be more likely to, to participate and share their ideas and offer solutions in the future. That's, that's uh, and, different and, than promising um, prize money and medals and, and other things. That it, right. I, I've long I, said that what people do this for, they really want more work. They really do. That's true. They, they, they want the opportunity to do this. And sometimes it's very simple, you know, the recognition, one, just acknowledgement. You know, we, we have commander's coins for excellence, you know, which I can, you know, pass out to, to a deserving soldier. We do have medals. You know, you can give an achievement medal, something that can be approved at the battalion commander level, a little piece of colored ribbon. But it's more – or it could just be something as simple as a certificate of appreciation or just bringing them up in front of their peers and, say, and saying, this soldier uh, did something extraordinary. And this it's worth is worthy of recognition, and I think everyone else should try hard to, to to be like this soldier because we need all of you involved in this process because we need, you know, we need we need to increase the size of the innovation labor pool. Uh, so you know, people people respond to incentives, whether the big incentives or little incentives. Uh, we're all human beings. I think we appreciate just a, a little positive feedback from time to time. So what what was your incentive? You know, for, for me, it, what made yeah. you, you know, really excited about this? Because, you know, quite frankly, as a brigade commander, there are probably a thousand things you could have focused on and done just as well. This one yeah. probably not the most popular topic and not the easiest to take on. It, it was a challenge. It was something different because you only get one shot at being a brigade commander. I didn't want to just come in and kind of row and, and just kind of tread water with the organization and, and do my best to not get fired. I wanted to, how do you really move it forward and do something unique uh, and, and, and take the, the skills and the resources and the experiences that you've had prior to and really leave your mark on, on, on the organization. And that, I don't mean that to sound egocentric, but I feel like the Army's invested a lot in, in, my, in my personal education and the experiences, you know, whether that's you know, in, in conventional units, special operations units, whether it's teaching at West Point, having the, the, the opportunity to go to fully funded graduate school and, or to spend a year just thinking uh, and writing at Stanford. I, so I, I felt like I owed the Army uh, something and they needed a return on their investment. So I wanted to see, how, you know, how do you do it better? How, how, how do you make the organization better? And the Army measures 
that you know the 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 training readiness of your organization based off your performance at at the Joint Readiness Training Center if you're an infantry brigade combat team. So for me, I was like, well, we need to win at JRTC. We need to go down to this to this combat training center and do it differently because I you know I, I got tired of listening to people say that you're going to go down there and and the op four is going to they're going to work you over and you're going to lose. Everybody loses. It's okay to lose. I said, no, I, I think we're capable of winning. Uh, I believe in the, in these soldiers. I, I believe that we can train them to a certain level. And then if we do it, it, on the margins, if we can, you know, if we can make some changes that are, that are going to enable mission command, uh, allow them to be, uh, you know, more lethal and more ready uh, and just a little bit smarter than the enemy. I think we can, I think we can actually win. And that, that was the goal going in. And that's, I feel like, you know, after you know, 18 months into, into my command, it was just last March, actually. So maybe even a little further than that, we had the ability to deploy down to Fort Polk and, do, and have our, you know, our, our time there in the Super Bowl, our time in the arena against the Op4. And we did well. I mean, by, uh, you know, the feedback we got from, from our, the, the observer controllers was that it was a standard setting rotation and, there were some really innovative things that they had never seen before and lessons that they want to share with, with other units in the Army. So to me, that was success. There was also a lot of things that they told us we needed to do better. <laughs> of course uh, and, they did. And as a learning, org- yeah, as a learning organization, they helped, us, they helped us see ourselves and, and helped us kind of go back and, and, and re-blue and, and refocus some areas that, that we need to train on. But I think there are also some, some takeaways that, were, that, that made, it, made me realize that, that that time was well spent. So, uh, and so you, if, the, if the organization continues along that trajectory, then I'll feel like you know, then my time was was worth something here. And so, you, so you pretty well feel validated, you know, through that. I don't want to call it the Super Bowl. You know, validates all that hard work, and you walk out of it with, uh, you know, we did really good work. We learned some things, and now it's time to start again. Mm-hmm. I'd love to talk about education for a little bit, and you know, you started to talk about it, and you're actually a product of of an Army education program. Uh, you know, senior military fellows that come to Stanford University for a year and and write papers that <laughs> that not many people read. But in in your mind, having done this at the the tactical level, kind of the reason the reason I I, I asked this, um, one of our former guests was Command Master Sergeant Ian Eisen, who's the 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 Command Master Chief at uh, Edwards Air Force Base, and. He has recently created, I know you probably do the same thing, but internally to his command, he's got a school for newly rising non-commissioned officers. And he's recently created a one-day section of that class that focuses on innovation. They really you know, focus on problem curation and kind of lean methodology and how you, how you think through things. And he uses that as a baby incubator to, you know, one is to get new problems, but to, to help onboard new people. I recently had a longer conversation with a senior general officer who was we're really talking about if you want to scale this across the Army, where is it appropriate to train certain people at a certain level in terms of innovation? And then, you know, all the way up to the point that we have a conversation about the Army Fellows Program and whether the Army was getting everything out of it that they could be or whether the places they could, they could fine-tune it. And I know that we're going to take a quick break here, but I'll give you a couple seconds to think about that while, while Tom reorients us, and, and we'll come back and listen to your answer. That's Sounds terrific. Good. This is the Innovators Radio Show and Podcast on KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM with Tom Duro and Pete Newell. Each year, the lighthouse touches the lives of thousands of people, people who have been blind their whole lives or who are new to blindness because of eye disease or trauma. The lighthouse works to help people achieve independence, equality, and self-reliance through rehabilitation training and needed services. This includes access to employment, education, and vital government information. You can help. Donations are always appreciated. To learn more, visit lighthouse-sf.org. We're talking today with Colonel John Cogbill. John, there's a, a number of articles that I found on you, one in particular. We'll go back to that after you answer Pete's questions. <laughs> <laughs> nice radio. We're really in sync here today. <laughs> um, you know, and, and I'm actually looking at the articles, and, and we're kind of we're kind of in the right place. Um, the Army has expressed a desire to scale things and scaling innovation across the Army. 
um, I, I'm an advocate of education. So, so what do you think they, how do they start? How do you actually imbue this in, in, you know, a mass number of brigades? You've been highly successful in, in a brigade, but, but how, how does 101st Airborne Division do this, much less, you know, tens, tens of divisions in other places? Where, where do you start? Yeah. Well, I, I think you start in the organization that you're in, which is why, you know, here in the, in the 3rd Brigade, Rockasans, uh, this, this was our little Petri dish where we were able to, to experiment a little bit. And I was able to do that because I was the one underwriting the risk. So anytime, the biggest risk to me was, was kind of the opportunity cost of spending time on teaching, learning, and practicing innovation and what that could have resulted in in terms of training readiness and doing kind of our fundamental blocking and tackling skills, marksmanship, battle drills, medical training, um, and, and physical fitness. So it, I, I didn't see it as zero sum. I thought it, it, it was something that, you know, was, it was really additive and that, you know, we, we could do both. Uh, but it does require you kind of set up parallel structures and, 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 and get creative about how you, how you do these things. So, I think from the Army's perspective, there, there's formal education, then there's informal education, and then there's just experiential learning. Um, and, you know, I, I, like I mentioned previously, I, I had the, the good fortune to to get not only, you know, a four-year education at West Point, but to have the, the ability to go back for two years of fully funded graduate school as part of the Army ACS program, the two-year graduate program, which uh, a number of officers are given this, this opportunity, but, but not everybody. I, I, I went back to go teach uh, economics, and that's kind of what I focused my education on. But by being there, I saw that the, the value in just having uninterrupted time to think, to research, and to talk to people outside of the Army. Kind of immerse yourself in a creative environment, a scholastic environment with lots of smart people in diversity of thought. So I think that's important to, to kind of creating an, the right environment, the right ecosystem where, where good ideas can flourish. And so that's part of the Army's formal education. Now, we also have professional military education, which I think we, we could possibly insert th things like design thinking, lean methodology, innovation into our basic officer courses, our captain's career courses, our NCO education schools. Uh, but the problem is there's so much already jammed into those programs of instruction that you fight tooth and nail to, to replace an hour of you know, teaching tactics with an hour of teaching design thinking. So that's, that's, but it's an area where we could, it, we could get the introduction. So no, I, I, I think I, we're, I, I yeah, think that, you know, as you said, the, the main difference between you and lots of other people is you came to the Valley and you experienced it and were immersed in it. And right. I challenge a lot of people to, you know, there's one thing to teach somebody something. I can teach design thinking all day long. It doesn't mean you're going to experience it or, or be able to actually do it. You can read the book, but without that ex experiential immersive learning, you you can't make judgments about what works and, and what doesn't, and how to use it. So I, I think that's been our conflict with with the whole education thing. And quite frankly, that that's you know why we designed hacking for defense the way it is. It it, it is immersed, hard learning that comes from you know getting real world experience. It it's not book learning. So I, right. we're, we're kind of struggling with that, the concept of, of is this something that belongs inside the schoolhouse or the military, or is it best done at the base and individual unit and, and enabling folks like you to actually take this on and, and bring folks along? Right. Yeah. I'm a proponent for the uh, advanced civil schooling. That's the ACS acronym I was, I was flailing with earlier for both officers and non-commissioned officers, because I think uh, innovation is too important to, to just be left to, to officers. I think we, we've got to get the people who lead soldiers who have been privates through specialist sergeant, uh, get them involved and teach them, this, the, give them some of the similar educational background to give them the tools to be able to participate in this process. But more importantly, I think, without being able to change funding for, for major programs, you know, what, what we can do inside of, a, of, our, of our tactical formations, and that is you know, kind of bringing that experience that I had there at Stanford here to Fort Campbell, and and one one way that we've we've tried to do that is we've developed a partnership with Vanderbilt University, understanding just the, the amount of talent, uh, the depth of talent, uh, with you know the, the the wide range of academic disciplines, 
uh, in a very uh, in in the world class research facilities that they have are all things that could really accelerate the the innovation initiatives that we have here. So just like Silicon Valley, you know, you've got all these smart people in search of hard problems that exists in in at in our institutes of higher learning, some of these major research universities like Vanderbilt Vanderbilt University, where you've got all these really smart, talented people that are looking to solve hard problems. So we thought, how do we let, how do we bring these two together, um, and, and and then let them work together and collaborate with our soldiers, so that as we come up with ideas, you know, that may be incremental in, in nature, how do we how do we bridge that gap, that innovation gap between the sustained innovation and disruptive innovation by leveraging some of the capability that we have at our universities, and and bringing them here, uh, letting them see the way that we do business in the Army with a fresh set of eyes, you know, with the perspective of somebody. Uh, that's a computer scientist or a kinesiologist or an anthropologist. Let let them look at what we're doing and and offer some solutions. You know, iterate with us in the design process and see what we can come up with, how we can improve our systems. And and getting soldiers involved in that and letting them have those interactions uh, is part of that informal education, especially when we can structure it with some basic overview. We can we can teach them the basics of design. We, we can take them through some some design sprints or a hackathon, or and, and they leave having immersed themselves in a problem and been a part of the process and, and, and immersed in this environment. And now that they can go back to their respective units and continue this collaborative efforts uh, to make their units better. We can talk more about the Vanderbilt relationship, but that's, I think there's a ton of potential and what I like about it is it is scalable. So what started with a, our brigade forming a relationship with the university has now expanded to the division. Uh, we've got the buy-in from oh, the division phenomenal. commander. That's great. And, uh, and and he is excited about it, and he's he's moving this forward. Uh, and we're trying to formalize this relationship even further. One, by using the Army Futures Command and, and establishing an educational partnership agreement with Vanderbilt, we are now have top cover to be able to to collaborate and experiment with them without running afoul of any type of program manager or, uh, or having to ask Mother May I to, to go work on a new idea. That's great. Um, but we're, we're trying to further formalize this by creating you know, actual innovation officers as, as duty positions, although we're not authorized this through our current MTO, we're, we're looking to Army Futures Command to give us a command innovation officer to, to, to really track modernization priorities for the commanding general and then take creating positions inside of the brigade, on uh, which I've done uh, with a lieutenant, uh, a West Point graduate, recent MIT graduate uh, from uh, the, one of their master's programs, who is now our brigade innovation officer. And the real catch would be these innovation fellows selecting five to seven officers, NCOs, or warrant officers from across the division, you know, representing the different war fighting functions, you know, whether that's the artillery, whether that's our intelligence, whether that's aviation, et cetera, but, you know, representatives from all the different uh, capabilities that we have here forming like a cross-functional team to, to be the connective tissue with Vanderbilt, where that for six to 12 months at a time, their primary duty is to, is to liaise with Vanderbilt and work with them on some of the projects. We've got about six to eight projects that are ongoing right now, but if we can wow. expand that across all of the brigades in the 101st Division. Now you're getting 20,000 some folks from the division working innovation, plus the additional special operations units that, that reside here at Fort Campbell. I think it can be really powerful. And wow. what we do here at the division can be replicated in the 82nd Airborne Division. If they had an innovation partner partnership with, let's say, you know, Duke, UNC, yeah, UNC. Uh, Chapel Hill, and, and then scale that across every division in the Army, I think you can really, you can really make an, a positive impact. Wow. Wow. I had some good ideas in there. All right, Tom. No, no, you let it roll. No, 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 no. I, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm looking over your shoulder here, and, and I, I, I'm blinking at the culture thing. I'm blinking at the education thing. It's just it all comes crashing out. And, and I see there's so much goodness in, I, I think, John's long-term investment and in being a student of innovation and entrepreneurship turned into, um, as you said it, being the brigade commander who was willing to underwrite the risk um, and and take the, essentially, live with the opportunity cost of doing this versus 
anything else that could have been just as important uh, to the point of then creating and enabling and empowering young people to run fast and do things while also looking for opportunities to build structures around them that would protect them. That was a mouthful, but, but that's my takeaway from, from that long discussion. John, what is the risk when you do initiate a project and, and, and that you know is going to be innovative? What's the risk if it doesn't work? I, I think initially the risk for us was testing things maybe that started to encroach into acquisition program managers' lanes. So I'll give you an example. We, we developed this relationship with Vanderbilt, and uh, the director of making down there, they have a lab called the Wondery, uh, which is where, you know, 3D printing and prototyping, uh, it's run by Dr. Kevin Galloway. And so we, we had found some opportunities to collaborate, you know, using 3D printing to provide low-cost solutions, tools, things that, that are hard to get maybe in the Army inventory or expensive that we could produce ourselves or things that are high-use high, high use items that uh, instead of buying each time we could just we can make in a, a 3d printing lab one of the things that we we worked on was were um, trading uh, molds for demolitions uh, to be able to, to create the to, to build demolitions into into different shapes to have different effects as, as we're trying to do things like breach you know like create you know knock down a door using an explosive breaching technique or to cut a piece of metal etc so um, we realized that the, the molds that we use from these special operations demo kits were, were somewhat expensive and hard to find. And then every time you used one, you blew it up and it was no, and then you had to replace it in order to have a complete kit. So we thought this would be a great opportunity um, to, to use this 3D print capability to, to mass produce these things. And so let's say, well, let, let's do it. It seems simple enough. It's just a piece of molded plastic. So we did it. Uh, you know, we asked Kevin for, to, to collaborate with us. Uh, we, we built the molds. We took them out to a range. Uh, we, you know, we, we ensured that, you know, that the range was conducted safely. We had our, our engineer experts out on the range. We, did, we followed all the range safety procedures, live fire procedures. And then we proceeded to blow up these, you know, blow up these demo charges and cut metal and, and blow down doors, et cetera, and then measure the results. Um, and what we found was that it was a success and that, uh, the, you know, these things that we had made in the 3D printer functioned just as well as you know, the ones that we were paying all this money for uh, to order through the you know, the Army supply system. Well, we were pretty proud of ourselves and took some pictures and put it on Facebook and wrote an article about it, and uh, we're patting ourselves on the back. And then we started getting phone calls and emails, or I guess we didn't per se, but our higher headquarters started getting phone calls and, <laughs> and, and, and emails voicing their concerns that we were now kind of moving into lanes that we weren't really authorized to be in that, you know, we maybe had, <laughs> I know how these conversations there, go. Oh. Right. So yeah. It, it, what, what general Milley or, or chief staff of the army calls discipline disobedience. Maybe we, we knew that what we were doing was within the commander's intent and, and we felt like we were trying to meet his intent, but maybe we hadn't exactly followed all the, the bureaucratic procedures to, to ask permission. So uh, we did it and uh, nobody got hurt. It was done safely. But the, there were concerns about copyright. Anytime you're doing 3D printing, copyrights and intellectual yep. property, and then programmatic concerns. We ended up asking for forgiveness because our intentions were good. Our our, our leadership underwrote the risk and, and shielded us from, from. I still have a job. With programmatic telling, inhibition. Yeah. Can that happen <laughs> right. where you're actually? They say this is just it's gone too far that you lose. I don't know, lose pay rank. Status, you whatever know, it is. I think it's more insidious than that. So I, I have to tell you, um, I, I've worked advanced manufacturing stuff with the military for, for probably you know, 70 years now. Probably five years ago, some folks in the Navy came to me and said, you know, we really, I was doing 3D printing at the micro level in Afghanistan, I don't know, 2010, 2013. And we had these really cool mobile labs we deployed that had 3D printers, CNC milling machine, and we were doing great stuff. The Navy wanted to do the same thing on their submarine tenders. So here's the problem, is if a nuclear submarine breaks apart and it's in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, it has to go all the way back to Hawaii to get fixed. Or, I mean, it's just it's not always that bad, but, but that's kind of it. Or they've got these submarine tenders, which are ships that 
they resupply them and they have parts and they do things. And the idea was, we'll put 3D printers on these ships and we'll be able to make the parts. And, you know, we were we were going along and they were kind of great things and there were designs and thoughts. And then the manufacturer of the submarine stepped in and said, thou shalt not provide a part to this ship that doesn't come from us because we have the contract and the IP and the, it, it was bad. It, it just it shut it down a heartbeat. I think it's taken the, the Navy six years to bring that program back online. Six years to, to wrangle the way through the lilies to figure out how will we do this without violating a void. So I, I like John's expression. I mean, kind of what I said is, is I didn't know there was a rule that said I couldn't do that. So I did it anyway because it made sense. Nobody got killed and we learned something. Uh, if you really want to punish me, Go ahead, but but publicly it's just not going to look real good. Um, and I think you know in John's case that you know the division leadership did the right thing. I'm sure there were um, I have plenty of stories of, of program managers who were unexcited by the things we were doing with their things, and and really just thought that we should mind our own business and just shoot the guns, not actually mess with them. And they weren't subtle about mm. their disapproval, or were they? And I. I I think that, you know, we never, like John, we never did anything that was unsafe. And we tested things thoroughly, but there's some common sense things. that say, you know, this makes absolute sense. And I think one of my favorite stories, um, coming from a, a young sergeant in Afghanistan who, one of the, John, you'll know this, the squad automatic weapon, which is a mm-hmm. small machine gun we carry, has a set of bipod legs on it that fold down and that braces the weapon so you can lay down behind it and it but the bipod legs only move two directions up and down or right and left this guy said hey you know i've done some design work and i'm thinking and he's, he's in afghanistan someplace having a conversation about i could make this do in three dimensions so that you could lean around a corner and do it and and he actually had designs so so we printed one in afghanistan for him and we took him to the range, and he sat on a small 25-meter range, and he put a 1,000 rounds through that weapon. Tinkered with it, and went back and redid the design. He came back and said, this is even better. So, so we iterated with this guy over you know, probably a two-month period. And we finally took the technical data package and sent it to the program manager for squad automatic weapons, wherever he is, and said, here's the problem. These guys were exposing themselves to enemy fire because this weapon... It only has two unilateral movements, and that's, you know, people getting killed. And and here's this guy had this design, and I, you know, I could never, I, I wish I'd saved the email and posted it on my wall, but, but it started out with it's unsafe for you to produce modifications of weapon systems. They need to be done by blah, blah, blah. You don't know if your modification would change the life, you know. The barrel of that weapon is designed to shoot a million rounds, and if you change that and does something that causes it only shoot 900,000, well, that violates some other things. What they didn't say was, send us that NCO. We want him. And, and, I th- and, and I'm talking, you know, nine, ten years ago, and I, I hope that died out in the Army somewhat, but those are the kinds of things you yeah. experience. That's a big yeah. loss if you don't do that. Uh We'll touch back on when we return. This is the Innovators Radio Show and Podcast, KZSU 90.1 FM, Stanford. The mission of the American Indian College Fund is to provide scholarships for American Indian students at qualified tribal colleges and universities and to generate greater awareness of these institutions. The fund also raises money, provides resources for tribal colleges, and promotes Native American studies programs. For more information or to help support their efforts visit www.collegefund.org john with again i'm going to touch back on what we uh, originally asked is again are there certain individuals that you can identify or um, wired in, in an innovative way or you just feel just from your experience that i think they may be able to move things along could, could you describe yeah. your ideal brigade innovation officer what the characteristics well, he's sitting, are he, he's sitting right next to me um yeah, so it, it's somebody that's... Uh, <laughs> of course he is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, as is my public affairs officer to make sure I don't... To hit me if I say anything I'm not supposed to say, which he's already hit me several times. Um, <laughs> no, but you, you just... You want somebody that, that's open-minded, uh, willing to learn, 
uh, creative, that helps, uh, and, and, and just wants to be a part of the process. They have to be, pa- as, you know, they have to be passionate about it, uh, willing to do it in their free time. And, and it's usually a good indication when you're getting emails on the weekend from, the, from your innovation officer about something new that, that, that we might try out or a new relationship or a new innovation fellowship or uh, a new partnership that we could potentially pr- pursue in order to further some of our initiatives. But, you know, I, we're looking for those people that, are, that they can work with their hands, uh, they, can, they, they can identify problems, offer solutions. Um, but I think, and then given them, everybody needs a little bit of coaching, a little bit of training, and they need an outlet. Um, and so you don't really know uh, how good somebody is or, or how much potential they have until you give them an opportunity to share it with you. And that's what we try to do quarterly with these, these innovation symposiums, um, you know, uh, an open mic night or, or, or whatever you want to call it, where kind of a shark take event where we allow them. Sometimes we just say, hey, you just tell us what we're not looking at. What, what are the blind spots? What are the capability gaps? I don't care what rank you are. Uh, but you're going to get a forum with you know the all the the, the brigade leadership. We want to hear what, what what you have to say, and let them come up there and pitch your idea. Uh, and how well can they communicate that? And and Pete, you and I have talked about kind of the the importance of of a young leader or a soldier being able to pitch an idea, you know, whether that's an elevator pitch or a Shark Tank pitch, um, but to kind of get their point across. And then and then if if it's worth pursuing, then a Applying what resources we have at the brigade level, which aren't much, uh, but and, and it's mostly time and, and, and interest that we can give them, and, and maybe a team of folks to work on it, and then and then being able to, to kind of transfer that down over to somebody else to, to pick it up uh, on and, and carry it down that pathway to, to actually becoming some sort of material solution or new concept that that the army may adopt. But that's what we're looking for. How fascinating. But, you know, I just, all the, all the, the great ideas out there. You know, and I'll say it this way, you know, part of my discussion with the, the senior general officer about the way things are today rested on the capability development, you know, folks out of the, the Centers for Excellence, essentially the, the training base for the military and, and whether or not there needed to be something like this in terms of, you know, what's the doctrinal change that adds innovation to mission command? Is, is it a person that shows up in the headquarters that, that is supposed to facilitate these collisions and, and things, or is it education, or is it something else? And, yeah. and I think, you know, you guys particularly, you know, where you're at now two years later, probably – have as much or more experience than anybody I've run across in terms of actually being able to put your finger on things that help and where there are opportunities to, to grow. So um, from my standpoint, personally, thanks for thanks for underwriting the risk <laughs> for a couple of years for the rest of us to watch and, and learn from. Yeah, it's, it's, been a, it's been a blast. I've had so much fun doing it um, and I'm very proud of what the soldiers in this brigade have accomplished. And, and all those things that you're talking about, you know, whether it's establishing an innovation officer or creating an education pipeline, um, th- these are all just things I think need to be done, you know, really so it, it can it can continue beyond any one commander because innovation is too important. It can't just be a good idea. It can't just be my idea. It needs to be something that's really inculcated in, in the, the, you know, the, the culture of this organization uh, that will be sustained uh, and, and as we as we try to scale it to the division, as we scale from this division to the core to the Army. Uh, that that's where we'll have success. But I think, you know, identifying innovation officers within our our organizations is important because you need somebody whose primary duty is is to is to shepherd this through the process, create those collisions, build the ecosystems, and keep it in the in the in the forefront of the of the commander's mind. Um, and then for those folks that we do identify in these positions, I think we need to educate them. With, you know, it's continuous education pro- process because we people rotate through jobs so quickly in the army. You know, every every year you've got you know a new staff, you've got new new leaders. Um, so you know, teaching design thinking, uh, makers courses, uh, all things that we've done here that we'll have to do on a regular basis in order to keep that knowledge base. But then also just building that culture where it'll start to spread. Um, you know, like 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 an insurgency where where more and more people are pulling other people into this 
uh, and joining the, the team and joining this effort, I think that's what will carry the momentum forward to the point where it can't be reversed. And that's what we're trying to do, create irreversible momentum uh, in, inside of our, our, our tactical organizations, our brigade combat teams that will, that will spread throughout the Army and, and help us you know, maintain some of our uh, that, that overmatch that the Army has enjoyed for, for so long. Uh, you have my my personal congrats, both you know, to you and to the the two folks sitting next to you that are keeping you out of trouble. <laughs> Thanks, Lord. I appreciate that, Pete. Uh, John, thank you. It's been an honor and pleasure having you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tom. I appreciate the opportunity. Excellent. You've been listening to the Innovators Radio Show and Podcast. Our guest today has been Colonel John Cogville, Chief of Staff of the Joint Special Operations Command. Colonel Cogville was commissioned as an infantry officer from the United States Military Academy in 1994 and has served in both conventional and special operations units in a variety of command and staff positions, including serving as assistant professor of economics at West Point. He earned a master's of public administration from the Harvard Kennedy School and studied design thinking, lean startup methods, and entrepreneurship at Stanford University as a senior service college fellow. His most recent assignment was as commander of the 3rd Brigade Rockassons of the 101st Airborne Division, where he made tactical-level innovation one of his command priorities. He has served as a peacekeeper in Haiti and Kosovo and has multiple combat deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan. Join us again next time when we welcome another mission-driven entrepreneur, thought leader, or game-changer committed to smart ideas, innovation, and getting out of the building. I'm Tom Dioro. Pete? And I'm Pete Newell. The Innovators Radio Show and Podcast is recorded at Stanford University Studios in Stanford, California, and on location throughout California. The recording engineer is Charlotte M. Thornton, Chief Engineer Mark Lawrence, and we're all assisted by Axe Jaggy. The executive producers and the hosts of the innovators are Tom Durio and yours truly, Pete Newell. If you need to contact us, our email address is interviews at kzsu.stanford.edu. Again, that's interviews with an S at kzsu.stanford.edu. Rhythms inside the flows, slave to the rhythm.